today we have Dan and Jonathan with us. So Dan Parry is the co-founder of Journey Into Product and a product manager for Ubio and the host of the Iron Hack podcast. And we have Jonathan Farrow, also the co-founder of Jenny Into Product and the founder of Orbital Lab. So welcome, both of you. Welcome. Hi. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it's, um, it's nice to be here. You're very welcome. So how long have we known you? Was it back in the summer before when we first went to Iron Hack and we went to one of their events? Mm. Yeah, I think you came to maybe our third or fourth uh, Journey Into Product event. So for those who don't know, Journey Into Product is a, a monthly meetup that Johnny and I um, organize, curate and host here in Berlin for product people. Yeah, and you two came to one of our one of our first events, maybe yeah, the I second so. or third way back when we used to host it on the Ironhack campus. Um, and then you've been to every single one since you never missed a you never missed a month which is yeah great. we've been avid followers of your work and these events i mean okay i know you can explain a bit more of it but for us ultimately it was just the fact that you could meet up with people and it was really chilled it wasn't like your normal wooden kind of events where you know you go and you don't really want to start talking to people because it all gets all business really quick and what's unique about your events and tell me if i'm wrong mira when you have a guest, and you can explain that in a minute, the first thing you do before the guest unpacks or gets into their topic is you ask the audience, you know, is there anyone looking for a job in the audience? Mm. And you also ask, is, is there any recruiters in the audience? And I think that's really useful because quite often we've noticed that a lot of our friends over the years have actually found work through this network. So it's not just another Berlin event, it's actually quite a useful one. I mean, yeah, thanks for saying that. Yeah, I mean, you're right. We were we were actually very lucky um, with a lot of what you said there in terms of it not being like a very wooden event. We've been quite lucky with the the community, the people that have shown up um, and have stayed with us have, have been really good um, to the community and to each other, you know, and to us. We've, so in that sense, we've been we've been really blessed to have such great people show up at the event. But yeah, we tried to make it not just another generic, hey, here's a networking event good luck networking together. You know, people are there for very specific reasons. They're either looking to find work, they're looking to hire people, they're looking to build their network or learn something or find clients for themselves. Um, and so we just figured we would address that immediately rather than, you know, pretend anything otherwise. And I think the best way to do that is just to call everyone out at the beginning, you know. So the key there, if anyone's wondering, make sure everyone's had like at least a beer before <laughs> you start asking them to, to raise their hand, you know, who's looking to get hired here. People are inclined to be quite shy. Um, but as soon as the ice is broken, I mean, you know, that, 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 that's the, the magic source, I think. Got you. So you've heard it right there. Free beer is the key. <laughs> There is yeah. <laughs> absolutely no question at all, uh, whether it's professional to say or not, the free beer makes the networking event worth networking. Well, yeah, it's definitely an icebreaker, no? <laughs> you know, it just re reminded me of, uh, uh, there was a, it was also happening in Berlin a few years ago, I thought it was hilarious. There was beer yoga, somebody's mm. <laughs> So whoever was uncomfortable doing exercises with other people will probably go on that one. Yeah, anyway, that was yeah. uh, off topic for a bit. So Jonathan or Johnny, um, I just, I'm just curious, how did you two meet? I know you've told us before and tell me if I'm wrong, were you not two in a band? Cause I know you're both musicians as well, which we'll get into later probably. <laughs> yeah. I think it was in a music room at school. Okay. Um, oh. Yeah. I think it was 
deep at night and the full moon was like going through the window and I was looking through a plectrum and I happened to look up and Dan was holding one. And from that moment, we were sort of best friends forever. (laughs) No, I think it was more just in in class sitting next to each other going, hey, do you play guitar? Yeah, I play guitar. Cool. We're friends. Yeah. Back in 2005, I think that was. um, uh, Yeah. Wow. We were in many, many uh, ill-fated bands. And and you both both came to Berlin. Yeah, I mean, I came to Berlin first, and Johnny was floating around in London, and then um, he managed to get in just before, one day before the first lockdown in the COVID era. Oh. He arrived. He arrived just as winter hit, and Berlin went into lockdown. So it was like, welcome to Germany. Um, there's nothing to do for six months. <laughs> yeah, I had twenty days to get my residency card so I could stay. So it was quite stressful. Well, you survived. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. So for those listening, I mean, I've actually heard both of these in a band. Well, when I say a band, actually, I was at a house party at your house, Dan, were we not? So I've actually yeah, heard yeah. you both play. And actually, you've got a decent voice, so fair dues. You know, maybe yeah, you should well. keep on it. But <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a story there, actually, once. <laughs> so we were always playing music when we were young and no one would sing we were only teenagers no one no one could sing so me and johnny were <laughs> in his room one time to, thinking of ideas like how can we get a singer in the band and i emailed a music a, a singing teacher do you remember yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> i emailed her saying now in hindsight it's a very stupid question but at the time we just didn't know we were like i think 16 17 i emailed her saying can you learn to sing or do you have to be born with it? And she wrote me back as a singing teacher and was like, of course you can learn to sing. Like, <laughs> that's my whole profession is teaching people. Um, so we never followed up on that email. But then I think that's when I, I started singing badly um, and then just sung awfully for, what has it been now, 15 years? So hmm. people just complain less now. That's all. <laughs> the, uh, uh, what I'm curious about is, has having that music career for both of you helped being entrepreneurs as you are right now um i'd say to some degree so just being able to pick something up so what used to happen quite a lot of the time was you'd get a phone call in saying hey someone's dropped out could you come learn all this music and jump on stage quickly you've got an hour <laughs> so after doing that a few times i think it it's definitely helped in some degree where some situation would have popped up and it's like all right i've got to react to this quickly or learn to it quickly that does happen quite a few times in Germany where we've gone to set something up and maybe one of the speakers has not been able to come or the time has changed. Mm. Right, what do we do? How do we adapt to this? So I think in that sense, for sure. Yeah, yeah, that's a good segue. Sorry, did you want to go? Sorry, Dan, go on first. No, I was, I, for me, I was just going to say, um, I find that in tech, it's always, at least for me, in my experience, it's always been very beneficial to be very extroverted and outgoing and having the ability to talk and explain things. Um, and I find that that is a valued talent in the world of tech, um, thankfully for me, and suited me well. And I think that came from, certainly from having, or maybe the music career came from being extroverted, or maybe I became extroverted because of, of being on stage. But yeah, I would say that for me, that there's this really solid link there. Yeah, chicken and egg, eh? So I think that's a good segue into back into Journey into Product that, yeah, I mean, obviously we witnessed a lot of your events since we've known you and we did your last one, right? Which was when? Last month? Yeah, I think a month ago. And 
There was a few things that were challenges, like with any event, right? But you handled them really well. And that's the difference. I mean, we've done many events, Mira and I, and sometimes it's just such a disaster that before we've even got to speak and center ourselves, and that wasn't the case with you. And we've obviously witnessed you, how you both handle other events in the past as well. And I guess that's testament to, again, maybe the experience of being on stage and being a musician can definitely help because there is always going to be challenges. And it's almost like... You know, you can plan for as much as you think, but then you never know what's going to happen on the day. Usually, evidently, something will go wrong, right? Yeah, but almost with, always. But with our events, no, it was a success. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I have to give a shout out here to our venue, Motion Lab in Berlin. Um, Motion.lab, I think you can find them on Instagram or, or LinkedIn. You can just search them even on Google. Um, that venue does 80% of the heavy lifting for us anyway, right? They gave us a, a, a sound system all set up and the speakers and the screen. And all you've got to do is plug your laptop in and, and seating and a fridge full where we could stick all our um, refreshments. So that's really great. Um, it just comes at the cost of it being quite difficult to find the entrance to. <laughs> so at your event, I was running around outside trying to direct people inside, trying to find the right way. And there was an angry security guard I had to deal with a little bit. But um, <laughs> I mean, yeah. So shout out to the venue for, for making sure I didn't have to run around setting up speakers as well. But I think yet again, this comes down to the quality of the people in our community. You know, I can leave 30 of you in a room just talking, making small talk and someone finds a way to find a network and finds value in it. And that's nothing to do with me or, or Johnny in the end. It's just a case of, of the caliber of people that, that come to our events. So Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And we never asked to do your event and not because we didn't want to do it. But interestingly, we were always like, you know, it's more product focused and more tech. But then you two quite nicely said, look, you know, you've been coming a while and we know what you do now. Why don't you do an event? Uh, why don't you do a, a masterclass and unpack what we do? I won't mention the company. Okay, I did. Sorry. Beep. <laughs> uh, but we, we kind of unpacked what we did for them. And it's quite transferable, even though that company is, you know, 90 plus years old. It's not a startup in, you know, obviously. However, the situation operationally on the ground was very similar to a startup where you're rapidly higher, you go from zero to 60, then 100 people plus. And evidently with that rapid growth and the challenges that comes with any operation, that's when sometimes the wheels can come off, even with the best people involved. And I guess that's what we unpacked. I mean, the title was Unpacking Success, Scaling Leaders and Teams for Startup Growth. Bit of a mouthful. Yeah, the mouthful. <laughs> trying to fit it on a flyer. Yeah. yeah. So... Maybe it's a good place to, maybe you can ask us some questions or maybe just reflect on what we covered because... And what was useful, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, rather than us saying it was useful, what did you hear, Dan? Yeah, yeah I mean, it made perfect sense that you would come and talk about such a topic because obviously product is a very, very broad topic in general, it covers lots of things. So scaling teams, you know, is part of the whole thing. So it makes sense. And having having um, uh, coaching and, and, and leadership leadership coaches like you guys um on stage was always made perfect sense to have us here um i think maybe the best thing to do here is have johnny ask some questions about how to scale successful teams because he's about to go through this process with orbital lab where he's going to be hiring um and i'm interested to wonder if you have any fears already mounting as to how you build good teams johnny 
Johnny, before you get into that, can you just explain for the listeners and the people watching this um, just a little bit about Orbital Lab? Yeah, sure. I'll give a little preamble. So Orbital Lab is, it started as an incident management, primarily for manufacturing and construction. And then what it sort of has, has evolved into is um, sort of operations management. So putting sensors and your data and then bring that all in to make operational decisions. So do I need to make this environment safer? Do I need to change my sales structure? So it's using AI data and, and sensors to drive decisions. Um, so it's been really me building the tech and I've got a sort of a co-founder who's really doing a lot of sort of sales right now. So we're looking now to that next phase of bringing that next person in. Probably a tech person and maybe a salesperson. And for me, the big question is all the slight fear as well, especially from the tech side is, oh, I've got to bring someone in. I need to onboard them. I need to teach someone. I need to delegate to them, um, which is perfectly natural. But it's also, right, what level do I bring someone in? Is a big question. Do I bring that intern in? I, I teach them and bring them up. Or do I, or I'm going to bring in a heavy hitter, that big sort of 10 years under the under their belt. I leave them. I can do my thing. Um, that's my. That's really what's going through my head at the moment. So, what do you think are the biggest skills that are often lacking when someone builds or switches on a company? And yeah, like you say, there's lots of things to do. The sales, there's a visibility piece, and then you start to hire people. Uh, you get money from investors if that's required all of that stuff but what do you what, what do you think are the most in-demand skills gaps or the things that people find challenging when they are scaling up a company i i think it's maturity i think it's maturity in a person um i've worked with some like brilliant people like we call sort of like rock stars but you they've lacked that maturity and i've definitely lacked that myself at some point so yeah you know i can do this this and then you're like okay the mature person can say yes i can jump on this um task but i don't mind jumping on that sales call you know the engineer that will happily then go all right i'll come out with you and meet these customers or i wanted to do that but we know we can't do that um task anymore we're good to do the other one i think finding someone like that that's happy to generally look at a scene and take the mature choices, I think that's quite hard to find. Well, it's quite hard to test for, I think, in an interview as well, how someone reacts like that. Somebody who is who is comfortable with themselves, that, that's yes. what it sounds to me. Uh-huh, uh-huh. It also sounds to me someone who's had a bit of mileage, because tell me if I'm wrong, that quite often in the world of tech and startups, and especially Berlin, because it is generally quite a young crowd, and I wouldn't say it's ageist, no, you know, far from it. But what I find is that there's lots of people older, like my age, you know, getting into the late 40s or even in the 50s. They've got such amazing transferable skills and they've already cut the teeth and gone through lots of calamities and worked in companies that have, you know, structured and done the kind of things that you have and all of that. But why is it that companies and startups are not so comfortable hiring people that are a bit older than themselves? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know if it's a... Because start work. Ironically, most successful startups, someone said, tend to be between people in their mid, mid-30s to late-40s. Probably says something there. I think you hire the people around you, right? If I'm going to hire someone that mm. is mm-hmm. looks like me or behaves like me, yeah. it tends to be an early trap early on. Um, so I think that's probably it. I think it's, uh, if, I'm, if I was in my 20s, would I be comfortable hiring someone 15 years older than me? Because there's that fear of, well, would I, will they become the leader? Are they going to steer the company i think as you get more mature it's like i don't care can you please do this job and yeah. 
you know, work with me. Uh, you are great if you can lead. That takes some burden away as well. Yeah. There's definitely a there's definitely a balancing act there between the you know okay is someone with 15 years experience as a developer necessarily a better hire than someone who's been in it for three or four years but had a career beforehand which gave them other transferable skills. I think that you're exactly right that people tend to like hire within a bell curve of of their own age group somewhat. I think if you've got like a 19 year old founder out there, it's unlikely he's gonna the first people you're hiring are 45 year old you know, oldies in the game. Um, that's not necessarily the best practice, but I think that is the practice that seems to prevail. And um, I think you'll find that a lot. I think it's also quite interesting to look at, like, nowadays, the way that tech moves so fast. You know, could could you argue that anyone over a certain age is, is has different tech building habits? You know, is everyone evolving all the time? Are people from a certain generation, you know, more used to building building products fast and failing fast or people who are come from maybe the more traditional works environments where that's maybe new to them so it adds this additional friction mm. and i think that i don't envy i mean i don't envy having to hire uh, or scale teams right now which is exactly why we had you at the journey into product mm-hmm. right it's exactly this yeah. is the information yeah. that's hidden so so it, yeah it's yeah. a tricky one I think, I mean, this is really good fertile ground, so thank you both, because, I mean, tell me, if, I mean, what we said on the night, and Mira can tell me if, if I'm wrong, but I think what we talked about is multi-generational hiring, and exactly what you said, Dan, that, you know, you're not comfortable if you haven't mixed with different age groups, and I think, to be fair, like, you know, I'm a musician as well, so I was quite comfortable mixing with multi-generations straight out the gate, so it was a lot easier for me to hire people who were a lot more experienced or older because I was used to hanging around in circles of those people. But I can totally get it when you say a 19-year-old co-founder and, you know, there's a team of them. And I know there's, you know, a group of white guys with beards, you know, all, and I know they get a lot of heat, but that's just normal. You will end up mixing with people. You know, you might start the company straight out of university with a friend. There's nothing wrong with that. You shouldn't be held accountable for that. That's not negative. But I think it's just pushing yourself out of your comfort zone to be able to go, okay, do I really need a feedback loop of three other 19-year-old people as our first hires, or could we go outside of that pool? And it is challenging. You know, when you hire, it, it's really, really challenging. And, uh, we, you know, we speak to companies every day, and even the mature companies are really struggling to find top talent. But when we say to a company, why don't you dip your feet into the older age group they get really nervous and they come back with, you know, they're going to be set in the ways. It's not necessary. And I, I agree to your point, Dan, just because you're older and wiser doesn't necessarily mean you might be a good fit. But again, how do you know if you haven't really tried it? And we just hear a lot of people in the 50s struggling to get work in tech companies. And I think that's a shame because we hear the same companies say, we've got no experience and it's a shit show. <laughs> So I'm like, okay, well, if you want that said shit show to go away a little bit, why don't you hire someone who's already cut the teeth, grown an operation with 100 people in or 1,000 people? Surely they've got some way of calming some of those headless chickens and trying to resolve some of that stuff. Yeah, I think there, there is really no right or wrong, but what we all need to be aware of is what we are uncomfortable with and being able to accept and see uh, what we can learn from each other when we are in multicultural and multi-generational environments. 
I know that I wasn't comfortable with lots of things. And that probably guided the way I, I led teams and company. And if I was aware of that, then it would have been different. So it's, it's always, uh, I think, as you know, Johnny, you, you are now in a situation where you need to make these decisions. And, and probably whoever you hire, it won't be a perfect fit. Mm. But it is being aware of it and then doing things in order to, like, why am I hiring that person? What skills do I need from them? And then how do I create a relationship with that person that we both feel comfortable around each other so we can call each other out for things? You know, you're too slow. You're not adapting too quickly. We need change. You're not comfortable with change. What can we do about it? And so I, I think. One of the things that I see in in companies is that, especially when they're hiring a lot, when they're in expansion and growth phase, uh, is that they're trying to find the perfect fit. And then you have like 15 interviews with 15 different people just because they're too scared. And still, they they hire somebody who isn't a good fit. So the more fear you have about it, more likely it is to be a wrong hire. And it's interesting that the harder the interview process usually equates to them not finding the right talent, believe it or not. Which doesn't mean you know, <laughs> yeah. technical skills. That's something different, obviously. But what you're looking for is, is, is also, you know, the leadership skills, the, the interpersonal skills and, and stuff like that. There must also be the fear of you don't really have time to experiment and get it wrong. If you're mm. in a startup, you kind of like don't have many iterations of, of hiring a whole new team each time. Mm. So there is that kind of pressure of like, can you do these basic things that I know I need, the, mm. the hard skills? And then mm. the soft skills are like a bonus, I suppose, right? Yeah. I, I am a savant level genius coder. I need someone to, and you need someone to build code, hire me. But yeah. then in the reality, you can't just have someone who's like, I like to code and cannot <laughs> communicate. This is, you know, this is, I think, the fear. And so... Yeah, to repeat myself, it's a balancing act. Uh, Jonathan? Same, I, that's interesting. I've worked for a few companies and, and so freelance for a bit where they, the first few hires were these sort of like, coding is my life. Uh -huh. uh, I, can, I can code more than I can talk uh, to people. And then, but later on, as the company's got to like 150 to 200 people, that sort of person has then sort of almost disappeared in the organization because this has a whole organization's grown mm. and sort of built a culture and they no longer sort of fit within it but ironically all the, the code that they've built is so sort of like only they know what it does mm -hmm. <laughs> you know so they get this sort of tension of all right no one really likes this person but we can never get rid of them <laughs> because... well, the foundation Ooh. of the company <laughs> you know yeah yeah that's i mean good. that's the that's the key though right or i make all of my Product notes completely indecipherable to anyone but me. So I'm grand, <laughs> yeah, so I cannot in, be yeah. fired, right? <laughs> yeah. It's interesting you yeah. say that, though. I mean, the bad news is you will make mistakes in hiring. And that's for anyone listening. You know, I've made mistakes when I've been a hiring manager. It will happen. But the good news is you can learn from that experience. And yeah, there is that fear. You're dead right, Dan. You know, you've only got so much money and time. And there's all that time pressure. And, you know, oh my God, I've got this first seeding money to, to get up and running. And if I mess it up, then we're going to be dead in the water. Not always the case, because if you can 
you know, really develop your leadership and your coaching skills, then if you do make a mistake, then it's really just taking a step back and going, okay, what can I learn from that? And the next time we hire someone, we need this, this, and this. And, you know, it's it's like with anything in the tech industry as well, or the tech world where, you know, everything's in permanent beta anyway, right? It's always new iterations. And if you can see it from that curiosity, from the create, from a, you know, standing point of creativity, it's it's always something that's a fluid thing. It's never a fixed thing. You you can hire someone great and you'd be like, wow, that's something I can learn that's a positive. But there's always going to be something missing or something that's not quite right. And if you can just get a little bit semi-comfortable with that, you're more likely not to go into that cul-de-sac of fear where you'll just make, you know, just really ill-informed decisions, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes total sense. No, so I think that makes total sense. Um, I was just, just when you were saying that, I, I, that cul-de-sac of fear tends to lead to that real micromanager trying mm. to control everything, which is just never a situation you want to be in. Um, and, and that's not what, something that you want because you want somebody to be able to delegate things and actually not be standing behind them. But you know what's interesting to me? Um, I've... I've, I've just I was just thinking back to the evening when we did uh, the event, and one of the reoccurring themes was relationship building. And mm-hmm. yeah, it was it was that. almost every question. One of one of the answers to it was, you know, you need to build a relationship in order to do this. You need to build relationship in order to do that, and. And if you can, if you're comfortable enough to ask some uncomfortable questions and and be yourself in the interview, which will allow probably the other person to also be more themselves, you can then go with your instinct. And if you can, if you can notice beginnings of these relationships in, in some conversations that you have in inter- interviews, it's probably a good guide to whether this will be a good fit or not. Yeah, I think a big part of experience is having gone through it um, and realizing, having gone through it many times and realizing that everyone is pretty much the same on the other side Mm. of the table, you know? And I think that part of experience leads to people being less nervous and more themselves in interviews, which leads to people being able to build better relationships. So in that sense, experience is absolutely um what mm. invaluable because i see new people in tech all the time who are terrified mm. to give interviews so they just give this really nervous fear yeah. response to things which isn't who they mm. are anyway you know and then like you know a year down the line they're like oh yeah whatever this is the answer to that question and that's the people you want in the first place because you want people to not have these barriers and this fear and these or whatever it is these like this imposter syndrome or or anything that's holding them back so that you can build a relationship with them, so that you can get on to making decisions mm. that matter. And I think that this was a lot of the questions you were being asked that night. Okay, how do I give feedback to someone um, in a, without it coming across as negativity or aggression? And yeah, the answer is, of course, like make sure that person understands why they're being given that feedback. You know, that's what the relationship is for. It's not just like, hey, I'm, a, I'm an angry person and this is me being angry at you. You know, it has to understand, okay, I know this person isn't an angry person because I have a relationship with them. So therefore I can compartmentalize this feedback and see if Mm -hmm. what it really is. Um, And it's really difficult to find people who are 
have that trade-off, that ability to just understand that, like, see the situation for what it is, and and not c- come at it with, with yeah, fear. Or I think fear is the best word for it. It's some version of fear that stops people being themselves, and and you don't get the best mm-hmm. out of them. So, and and relationships are just the lot, the lack of it, the the loss of fear mm-hmm. all the time. So, I'm just reflecting what you said, Dan. What you said about yeah, there's it's interesting that. I think this would be good for people listening who are looking for work at the moment, who are job hunting. And and again, it goes, it definitely goes back to relationships, you know, getting your backside out to your event, for example. We know so many people in our collective network that benefited from doing that by being brave, by being bold and getting over the fear and just plonking themselves in the audience and actually finding that someone next to them is hiring, you know. But it goes back to, yeah, even the hiring managers in said startup are usually just as fearful, even more fearful than the the person they're interviewing. What's all that about? And it is quite natural because we, we've seen it many times with clients. I've been in interviews where I've been completely relaxed because I've got some kind of mileage and the person interviewing me it's all over the place. And then it makes me nervous and a bit fidgety because I'm like, what the hell is going on? And then it's kind of a disaster because I know that they're probably not like that normally, but I've got no human connection with them because they're so nervous and fidgety. And it's almost like the Hunger Games, you know, it's like, what the hell is this? So you end one, up with One a, of you has to die. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's interesting. If, so if you're going for a job and you realize that sometimes the hiring manager is just as nervous as you, Maybe it helps a little bit because I know finding a job and going through the interview process, it's no easy task. And we've seen a lot of people of late, sadly, because of mistakes with tech companies and startups where they've had to let people go or they've run out of funding. So they're back on the job market again. And, you know, if they're really unlucky, they've been in and out of jobs every couple of years because the company has just disappeared. So what's the solution? I mean, I think Mira touched on it, relationship build, because the more that you have allies in your network the more people you know locally and internationally because again you know it's a very digitized world now we've we've just had a client connected with a recruiter that's a global recruiter and probably find them a job now where they can be based where they want to be you know just before covid 2019 that was unheard of there Mm -hmm. were remote jobs and there was such a thing as hybrid but it was for the privilege through a few you know if you're a devops guy maybe but for most people who were outside of tech it was something you only dreamed of but then fast forward to now Mm. yeah i actually tried really hard to get myself a working from home set up way before like 2017 18 something like that Um, and now in hindsight i wish i hadn't because now i've been working at home for four and a half years You know, I was like doing it before and now, uh, yeah, it, now it's such a normal thing. Um, it's actually seismic how different it is now. It's so unbelievably odd now to, to if, if any of my friends are, let's say, interviewing for a company and one of the conditions is 100% office time, it's almost yeah. like a well done thing. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like that job. Don't go sit in an office for, you know, why do they need you to sit there for 40 hours a week? Why, if you, it feels like that people don't trust you. It's almost like an oddity. It's like, what, they want me in 100% uh, hard pass. <laughs> and and the irony is, I miss being in an office. I miss the camaraderie of this, the, um, what's Community. the word I'm for? Fellowship, I suppose, of having people around. Yeah, or maybe trauma bonding people who are stuck in an office. <laughs> Well, that's it. I mean, it's nice to have, if if you can, I know certain jobs, we're talking about privileged positions, right? Because some jobs you just can't have a choice in that, right? You know, if you're 
if your job is out and being out in the cold and you're, you know, working in that respect, you can't demand to work hybrid or whatever, right? But we're talking about office jobs and jobs where you can do that, right? And it's interesting that, yeah, the fact that we have that choice now where it's part and parcel of then, it's not a benefit, but it's, it's, it's just normal to be talking about that when you're recruited, right? It's, it's a totally different world. Will you, Johnny, will you buy office space or will you just hire remote when you build your team? Rem- remote to begin with, because uh, it's so expensive to get an office. And then if you're not using that office, you know, once every month, that's, it doesn't make sense. I, I saw a company said that what they do is they everyone is remote and they'll get everyone from around the world to fly in every couple of months, sit in the office, and then they can work on the big problems there. And then I was like, okay, that sounds quite nice. Um, I do really do see the value of jumping around a whiteboard together, though, especially especially in tech. When you go, here's a problem. How do we solve this? You know, how can we architect this? I see the value in that, but I don't think we'll ever get to a place where it's yeah. like everyone's going to be in the office. Yeah, 100%. I mean, again, it's probably that ship has sailed. I know some, I won't name the brands, but there's certain companies that are really messing it up and they're going to lose all of the top talent. But, it, you know, for people listening, if you can, and I know, again, it's a privileged position. You need money, you need cash flow. Like you say, if you're a startup and you're in early seeding, is it really a prudent idea to spend a big chunk of your operating capital on rents? Probably not. But as you grow, to be mindful that you might need to spend a couple of days somewhere else to do some you know, community building and creativity and collaboration stuff, I think that's a good sweet spot. And actually, the companies that we see flourishing they, that's what they try and do. They don't tend to waste so much on rents, but they, they cut down the office if they really need one to a smaller space because they might have two, or three, four people in there during the week, but then they hire a place, a place you know, for one, once every month or something to get most of the bulk of the team, but only if they want to, and then they give them a choice, really. And I think that's a really good thing that maybe one of the things we talked about as well was... Um, how do you manage people who are always in in the you know in a hybrid situation and they're not really in the office? What do you do in terms of the leadership? How do you check in? How do we communicate? Right? And I think someone someone asked that in the audience, did they not? I think so, yeah. But it was it was also you need to develop a relationship with them, wasn't it? So that was the base to start from. Yeah. Yeah, because one of the first things that people came to us when COVID happened, believe it or not, was oh my God, all of my team, I won't see them now. And I'm like, well, you will see them. It's just, it's digital. But what do we do? And I'm like, well, what did you do before? And, and it was an interesting one because they just forgot they can do the same thing, you know, because it wasn't comfortable for them to be on Zoom or Teams or whatever it is they were using. And we just calmed them down a bit and we said, look, check in a bit more often, but also crucially, don't become a micromanager. So ask your team, you know, how comfortable is it? You know, what, does support look like for you? So when you do the one-to-ones individually, just say, look, I've got your back. We can't be together so much now, but what, what constitutes me looking after you? Shall we check in once a week? And then just that simple thing, hey, how are you doing? The teams that we spoke to said, yeah, we love our manager because they're not micromanagers, but that we also know that they're in the background and if they need anything, they'll step in. And then the teams that were going completely where the wheels come off, right? They were, they just panicked and they just forgot to communicate with them. 
And then sadly, they become from, you know, pretty good managers to the team going completely off the boil and then low psychological safety, the trust with the road was eroded. But the good news is you can actually repair that really quick by just saying, hey, sorry, communication was off. Let's let's agree how often we can check in again. I, I think was the most difficult um, situation is where you've got an office, say, in London, maybe an office in Berlin. So you have a place where people are going to, but mm. you also have some remote workers. Mm. And then, actually, I've, I've experienced this before, um, where things will be talked about, you know, you go get a coffee, people will mm. chat, ideas move along. By the next call, you jump on where you thought the decision was. That was long gone, and mm. the conversation uh, yeah. happened in the office. I find that situation very difficult to, to think about, to say, right, these conversations are happening here. How do I make sure that person is not left out? Mm. How do I bring him into the loop um, and keep and keep him up to date? And I still I I still don't know a solid answer to that. That's not that is not just mm. if if decisions are made here, tell this person because people will always forget to do that. Um, stand ups, daily stand ups, daily stand ups. That's the key. You know, check in. I used to hate stand ups. I used to think it was a real like. Yeah, I used to think it was like a time controlling or just like a way to make sure everyone's like I don't know whatever. When I was a lot younger. Um, nowadays, it's just absolutely invaluable. 15 minutes is all we do, but it's absolutely enough to be like, and it's not just this, what did you do yesterday? And what are you doing today? It's like, let's reiterate what the goal is this week. And does anyone have any blockers or any issues? Is there any problems? Um, at least in my team, 15 minutes a day is, is more than enough time to like, you know, Monday and, and, and Thursday are really important, but the days in between of just checking in all the time. Nobody misses decisions. Everyone knows where we are. Um, and even if things don't change between, let's say, Tuesday to Wednesday, reiterating the things that are going on means that nobody is like, wait, what are we doing? Like, that's not happening. And, and so I think now as I, as I develop in my maturity, my professional maturity, I see it as such a m more valuable tool checking in constantly or regularly with the team. I, yeah, I agree with that. I think I think it's the inter team though. I think it's the inter team is where these the real challenges. Um, yeah, and I don't know any company that's like really got an answer for this yet. We do a cross team meeting every. It was every two weeks, um, but now we've even pushed that to once a month because it was like okay, every two weeks it's like this is what my team's been working on. This is what my team's been working on, and it wasn't. It was just like everyone else was kind of sitting around. So then what we've done is now we do um, at the end of each sprint cycle, so every two weeks, you do a sprint review where every other, everyone else is invited to it. Basically, it's our team reviewing what we did. We go through the sprint things. We reset our board for the next sprint. But we invite people from other teams so that people can see what's happening. Um, you know, that alongside a, a town hall once a month and all hands. I mean, it is meetings on meetings, but there isn't a lot of loss of information through the company I'm in, um, or at least it's the best I've seen it be handled without, you know, meetings upon meetings upon meetings. It's like regular spaces where you can choose to pick up information and it's all there. So I suppose it becomes everyone's responsibility to make sure that they find that time, you know. Yeah, I think these are all good options, but just to, for people listening and watching, it's just that every company and every team we've ever worked with, it is slightly different. And the main thing, if you're going to do stand-ups or have these all hands or have the town halls, it's the quality of the communication. And if the leadership is lacking, if the leadership abilities, if you can't ask the right questions or listen properly, 
then these things, as you said, Dan, become meeting on top of meeting. But it seems to work for you and your company for sure. But I think you've just got to find your feet. So, you know, quite often I'm a biggest, you know, we're big believers when we work with a client. We're like, well, what's going to work for you? Let's check in with the team. Let's collaborate and find out. And especially when it goes across different countries and different teams, you've really got to experiment again, permanent beta. So if a meeting doesn't work, you've got to be really brave and say, let's just cut that out of the week because it's adding no value. Or what can we change in order to get it more engaging? Um, I think one of the, so I think, was it last year we were working on, we still are uh, um, working with one of our colleagues on a, on a project for startups uh, and it is to, to help them in their scale-up phase uh, and, and help them with the, the most common with the things that they're getting wrong or they need to improve. And it just reminded me of it. It's leadership development, so developing leaders to be more comfortable and, and then it's communication. And one of, the th- one of the things in communication is what you were just talking about. How do we communicate to a wider team? How do we connect people? How do we engage people in communication? It's not just telling them what to do. But I would imagine that the reason why these meetings for Dan's company are working really well, because they're all probably engaged in it. It's not only one or two people talking. And, um, and then the culture. Yeah. I think, you know, part of the culture as well, um, whether it was deliberate or not, is that there are not many or if any juniors within the company structure. Um, I certainly don't think it's deliberate uh, hiring uh, strategy. I think it's just because it's such a deep tech company, people have to have a certain level of skill sets in order to be in it. And um, so everyone is, you know, a few jobs into their career, um, for sure. I mean, as you know, a good friend of yours, Peter, is the one who hired me there. Andrew was the hiring manager, Andrew Waters, and he's been in, he's been in the developer for 20 years now, 15, 20 years. So, um, and everyone's kind of of that caliber. Everyone, I think I might be one of the, I've been in product now for seven years and I think I might be one of the more junior people. And um, But my point is that that means everyone understands the value of these meetings. No one's just ticking off the box anymore. Everyone is like, here is some information that I, I need to get to help me be better at my job. And this meeting becomes therefore efficient and valuable, um, you know, as opposed to people who mm-hmm. are told to be there. So they just show up which I'm not saying is exclusively a trait of juniors. I just think that juniors are more inclined to um, show up because they're asked to rather than because they actually need to understand what's happening, you know? And I think that over time you realize you have to have a few catastrophes where you're like, ah, if I just listened in that meeting, I would know. And then after a while you develop or mature and you think, okay, I need to pay attention to this, need this information from these team members in, help, in order to help me. So therefore every meeting you go to becomes more valuable and i think that might be what we're describing as culture in in ubio at least um yeah i think that might be what it is if i'm if i'm Sounds thinking like it out loud now i think that's why yeah. they're so they work so well that's funny so no i was just going to say that reminds me i've i've been teaching three people uh, web development over the over the last sort of five months and i recently gave them a, a sort, of, sort of a project to do so putting together as a team and they went through the process of have a stand-up, have sort of the retros. So we introduced them, and exactly what Dan was saying, I could see the, the I could see the mistakes that they were making. I could see the, 
the where the train was going to crash. And initially, I thought I'd give him advice on this, and I could see him. No, nope, not going to listen. We'll go ahead. And even the, the stand-ups information that was being exchanged was very sort of. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. And I was like, okay, this is. We'll watch this. We'll watch this train crash. Yeah. And then we'll see the how how you guys react. And as as expected, the train mm. huge calamity. Everything's broken. <laughs> the next week, the stand-up was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> we need to do this. What do we? What do you need help with? Um, so I think you need to yeah, crash the train a few times actually. So I think what you're saying about the junior people first turning up is is spot on. What do you both think? And I don't know if Mira's heard this as well. So I was looking at something in the media this week, and it was all over LinkedIn, and I was like, "Wow, that's interesting." So someone, I, I don't know if it was just that uh, the, the level of US data. I don't know if it covered Europe, but they were saying that when they surveyed this certain demographic of people and companies, that they admitted to being in multiple meetings at the same time. And when I saw it, I was like, mm, okay, interesting. So I don't know if you've even heard of this, but and, and we've seen it, and I'm, and I'm not surprised really, because I've seen some companies that don't have the culture that you were talking about, Dan, and they definitely don't have the the, the awareness of, you know, what constitutes a quality meeting. So if you're going to have a stand-up, you know, let's make the most of it. It was the opposite. And these are usually companies where the culture's slipping, where they've got back-to-back meetings where everyone's kind of burnt out. So I can maybe understand if a manager's being bullied or apparently two or three meetings at the same time. And I was just like, wow, what's the point? Because, correct me if I'm wrong, I can't focus on one thing, let alone two things. So if I was to try and dip my toe into two meetings at the same time and try and keep track of two different topics. So, Peter, it means you're actually not efficient. Apparently not. <laughs> yeah. What do you make of that, you two? I'm speechless. How is that even possible? How can you possibly be in more than... Yeah, just even if you just mute your... Even if you're muted, but, like, what are you listening to? Like, what's... A, it's complete. I don't, I don't even know what to say about that. But but here's the thing. So we we so you're just being present physically. Yeah. I guess. So you know when we check in Barely. with teams, if we yeah. yeah. you know if we're doing work training as a company and we have like what twenty people on a Zoom or something, what we always say to them is, although there's all this stuff in DNI about I don't feel safe, so I don't want my camera on. I get that. I've got your back. But we're actually we, the way we unpack it. We're like, look, if you choose to be on this training, you're all in. So, you know, camera on and you're giving us the full 100% attention because we're actually want you to get everything out of it, right? And I was the same as a manager, even when people were like, like, you know, don't have your camera on, it's okay. I was like, actually, it's not okay because I want to check in, I want to see your reaction to stuff. And yeah, if there's that rarity where one of my team would say, you know, I'm a bit embarrassed, I've got my family in the background, it's a calamity, I'm going to have it off for 10 minutes. That's different. That's okay. But what we noticed with certain companies when we worked with them, they were putting the cameras off more times than not. And we had to check in with some of their leaders and say, look, what's the crack with this? And they were like, yeah, we just let them do whatever. And I'm like, yeah, well, that's probably why you're struggling with most of your meetings and why people are losing the will to live. So I think maybe if, if you've got a company like that where people are allowed to do it often, I guess you could get away with pretending to be in multiple meetings. But then the quality of that meeting is obviously going to be. I, I do remember. Uh, <laughs> I do remember now. Uh, was it last year or two years ago? When Peter had another attempt of of going to German classes, 
so it was it was online, but it was mandatory. You needed to be there. Camera had to be on, and somebody joined the class and said, "I'm actually at work, but I'm here at the class." And then the the teacher was uh, the teacher teacher said, "You actually can't do that." Uh, you need to be fully present here. You cannot do your work at the same time. And so it was. It was. I guess that's one of the things as well. It's. Uh, it's. It's. It's interesting that that people are trying to because people try. People think it's okay. I'll catch up on the information, but you cannot even think about something and listen to somebody else. That's again doing two things at the same time. But uh, so. I, I think we are, we are, do we want to conclude this conversation? Johnny, I wanted to go back to you. Did, did you get any, uh, any answers to your worries from the beginning of the conversation? Yeah, I can say I got some answers. Um, I'm, I'm still going to debate it in my head what, who I need to hire. Um, but it just needs to be remote. Brilliant communicator, <laughs> the perfect, the perfect person. person, essentially. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I think that I think the trick is the same way. If you're looking for a new apartment or a new job, it's best to look when you don't have the catastrophe of needing it immediately. Yeah. Start looking now; someone will pop up, and then you'll know. You'll know right away. Well, the good news is, I mean, you've got the network at least, Jonathan. You know, being a journey into product, so you've definitely got the right options for hiring. At least you can, you know, where to look, right? <laughs> maybe, maybe you yes, can just sir. stand up and say, "Hey, I'm looking for someone to come on and do this thing." But I, I think it's it's a great analogy than what you just said when you're looking for apartment. You don't. You you also want to look long term. You know, would I want to live here in next ten years, uh, or or is yeah. just quickly patch up situation where I need yeah. place to crash? Well, so you should also look whilst you still have something. That's the key. <laughs> I don't know how this analogy holds up there. You know, do you hire someone before you fire someone? But yeah, you're right. It's not just. It's a case of taking the time to look because of this. Longevity, but we are wrapping up. But that really fold that kind of folds back into what we were talking about earlier. Uh, do you yeah. hire to build a company, or do you hire for legacy ten years down the line? Well, I think that prudency of looking ahead—it's not a bad thing because we've we've met many clients where they're like, "Yeah, you know, we we know we need to let this person go in a humane way, but we'll worry about that problem when they're gone." And I'm like, "No, you need to start looking now." Cool. Well, it's been great having you both. Thank you. Any parting yeah. words you want to say? Any other things that make sense to say? Come down to Journey. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll yeah. see you there. Yeah, we'll see you free at Journey into Product. Yeah. Thanks for having us, guys. It's been great to talk to you. And yeah, You're we'll see welcome. you at Journey into Product. Thank you. Bye. 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 See you guys. Bye.